Well, we're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 16 in our Grow on Wednesday nights. We're talking about the beginning of the movement. We have spent this year from September through May looking at the Christian movement as it has begun and what it means and the significance of that. And uh, tonight we're going to come and, and um, get into Acts 16 a little bit and uh, see really the beginning of Paul going into Europe. Now, as I do this, I want to share some things with you. Um, one of the things about Paul that people don't really grasp is in, in all the things that he did, Paul was unbelievably strategic and unbelievably intentional. Paul looked to everything with purpose and planning. And because of that, he was able to be um, improvisational at times. He was able to be flexible. He was able to do things because he always understood where everything fit in his plan, or God's plan, but where everything fit in what Paul was trying to do. And you're going to see that that tonight. And last week we looked at uh, the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15 and, and you know, the, after Paul on his first journey had gone into uh, the area of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey, and he come back and the Gentiles are being saved and what do we do with the Gentiles? So now he's ready to go back and I think y'all are going to put a map up there for me for a little bit. Just go ahead and put that map up there. And I'm going to get to that map in a minute, but as I read, you can kind of see a few things. As I start, Paul is in Antioch up there on the right where it says Syria, that's kind of where he's going to be starting today. Uh, he's going to leave Jerusalem and go to Antioch. So that's kind of the thing. Um, <clears throat> verse 36 of chapter 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord. See how they are. He wanted to go back to Asia Minor and see how things were doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with him also. Paul kept insisting they should not take him along because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not gone with him to the work. And there occurred, notice this, a sharp disagreement. From the very beginning, Christians sometimes disagree. That's okay. You realize sometimes in disagreement, better things happen. And this is one of those agrees. And so they separated, and Barnabas took Mark, and they sailed to Cyprus. So they went on their own journey. But Paul chose Silas and left, and being committed to the brethren, to the grace of the Lord, uh, he, was, uh, he went traveling through Syria and Cilicia and strengthened the churches. So he went on his journey with Silas. Luke would join him along the way. So chapter 16, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman, and he was a believer, although his father was Greek or Gentile. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews were in those parts. For y'all knew his father was Greek. Now, we had just got through in chapter 15 saying that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. That's true. Timothy wasn't a Gentile. He was half Jewish. Paul didn't circumcise him to save him. Paul didn't circumcise him so he could obey all the law. Paul circumcised him because that's what, that was part of the Jewish connection to the faith. And so Paul did that and so that there wouldn't be any more controversy than necessary. He wasn't compromising anything. Had Timothy been only Gentile, he would have never done that. He didn't, Luke was a Gentile. Only never, it was Luke. He never, Paul never circumcised anybody in all of his journeys that were Gentile. But there's an importance to this. There was plenty of controversy to go around with Paul. He didn't need any more. Sometimes people ask me stuff. I was discussing with the guy the other day. And I said, there, there's one thing I've learned in life, the hard way for me, I'm not stirring up problems if I don't need to. If, that, if, if, I'm not, if it doesn't help me accomplish reaching people for Jesus, all it's going to do is irritate people. 
I, I do that plenty on my own, so I'm not going to do anything else. So when people say, well, why didn't the church do this and why didn't the church do that and why are we doing this? Why? Does it help me accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish? Not really. Then why am I going to, why would we do that? But Paul needed to do this to ease some of the controversy. So he did it. No big deal. <clears throat> they were passing through the cities and when they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So here's where it gets interesting. They passed through the Phrygian region. Uh, Phrygian and Galilee, uh, Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So if you look on that map, where did the map go? So they went through Lystra and Derby, and you see a little area, and then you see where it says Asia. That's, you think of Asia, you think of China. That's not, this, is, this, is, this is not what we're talking about, obviously. That's a province of what they would call Asia Minor or Turkey. He wanted to go to Asia. The reason he wanted to go to Asia is right down there, there's a black dot of a city called Ephesus. Paul wanted to go to Ephesus because Ephesus was the most important city between, other than Athens, between Rome and, and, and where he was in Jerusalem. In fact, Ephesus was really more important than Athens. He said the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go to, Ephesus, to Asia. He wouldn't let him go to Ephesus. Now, he'd eventually get there on the second journey. He got to the end of the journey. He wanted to go at the beginning of the journey. He got there at the end of the journey. Now, he would go to Ephesus at the end of that journey. Now, on his third journey, he'd start off in Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit said, not now. By the way, not now don't mean not ever. As bad as not now does not mean not ever. Paul's strategy was to get to Ephesus. It was important. He was going to get to Ephesus, but because he had a plan, because he was in intentional and strategic, he was able to also be flexible. He's going to get to Ephesus. But the timing wasn't right. If he'd gone to Ephesus to begin with, like he did at the start of the third journey, he might have spent a whole bunch of time there. He would not possibly have gotten to the places where God was going to lead him. Paul had a plan. God had a plan. God's plan included Paul's plan. But God's plan was the main plan. Paul went with that. So it says, where did I go? <laughs> they said that they were going to Asia. So they didn't go to Asia. So they came to Messiah. And they were trying to go to Bithynia. And the spirit of Jesus would not permit them. So you look at Asia. They were at Messiah. They wanted to go to Bithynia. Didn't get to go to Bithynia. Lord said, can't go there, Paul. So, passing by Messiah, they came to Troas. And in verse 9, it says this. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is that province up there where it says on the left of the screen, it says Macedonia. That was a province, a, a state in Greece where Philippi and Berea, Thessalonica, and all that stuff would be. And it was a, a, a Macedonian man standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought uh, to go to Macedonia, and concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, <clears throat> so you have the, the, a vision from the Macedonian man. And so a lot of times we use this passage to talk about God have vision, God have vision. And, and you do, and I've used that also. Paul already had a vision. This passage really isn't about having vision in the big picture, like you got to have a vision for your church. Paul had a vision. He had the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, working to him 
to call him to go someplace. The most important thing of this vision is to understand that Paul is being led by the Lord to preach the gospel where the Lord would call him to go. Now, let me just say this. Paul, when, when this happened, it's about 50 A.D., they didn't have a New Testament yet. They were, they were creating the New Testament. He, he was writing some books. He had only written one book. He hadn't even written the other books yet, the Old Testament, the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. The Old Testament was helpful, but a lot of things the New Testament, Old Testament helped them do. So one of the ways the Holy Spirit would guide them, just like Peter over in um, uh, chapter 10 when he had the vision, that allowed him to go to the home of Cornelius. Peter had a vision to allow him to go to Greece, to Macedonia. Today, the Lord guides us through our prayer and the Holy Spirit working through Scripture. That's how we get where God wants us to go. I don't, I don't go to my office and wait for the Lord to give me a vision. When, if I talk about having vision, sometimes I preach about vision, I'm talking about having a plan. That's what vision means. When the Lord guides me, it is through the Holy Spirit, through prayer, through scripture, and through prayer. Now, I know there are folks who will say sometimes, well, I had a vision, and that's fine. And so all I ask them, tell me what your vision is, and let's see if that vision measures up to what scripture teaches. In the vast majority of times when people have told me that God has spoken to them about, you know, literally, in some way, and I measure it up against scripture, it don't wash. Because that's hey, just not the way... I'm just going to say it's not the way it's done anymore. It's done through scripture and through prayer. And that, that is our guide. The Holy Spirit guides us through prayer and scripture. Now, there are times that he may do that, and I realize, especially on the mission field, and I get all that, but I'm just talking about from our situation. So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran straight course to Samothrace, and on that day, and the day following, to Neapolis. And there then to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. So they ended up in Philippi. This is where Paul launches his European ministry. Now, were there already Christians in Europe? Well, certainly there were. We know there were. They've been going. The gospel, it's been 20 years since the resurrection of Jesus. Well, we, and we know that people... You know, back right after it happened in Acts chapter 7, they scattered all over. They went back to all over the world. Paul would write in a few years to the church in Rome. He'd write to them. They were Christians. When he gets to Corinth a little bit later, there's, there's, there's already Christians there. But what Paul does that's different is, is a couple things. One, Paul is going to have a massive revival where there, was, there is rapid growth. But also what Paul's doing, and this is so critical, is he going to he's going to establish churches, which that wasn't happening, not in an organized way. He's going to develop communities of believers that are involved in worshiping and discipling and service and evangelism. And that's the brilliance of Paul. He is going to be dealing with conflict from the very beginning including at Philippi. So he gets there. Now, in that day and age, the strategy Paul used, and you'll see it throughout the, the first to the second journey, is he would try to go to the synagogue and begin there. And then he would, if they, did, if they didn't let him, which oftentimes didn't occur, he'd go and then just preach to Gentiles. 
But to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 Jewish men. Without any Jewish men, there was no synagogue. So we come to verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went outside uh, the gate to a riverside because there was no synagogue. And that's where we get the song, Down by the Riverside. So we went down by the riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. He was thinking there would be at least someone there praying, a couple of guys. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had a symbol. Who was there, women? So the first converts in Europe of Paul are going to be women because there were no men. Yeah, I'm not even going to talk about that anymore. So, yeah, I don't have enough time to get in that much trouble and get out of it. There was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple fabric. She was a worshiper of God, and she was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. woman there named Lydia. The fact that she sold purple means she was a wealthy trader. Purple was an expensive commodity. It's not, you know, it's not like colors today. You know, to, to get purple, there was, it was a complicated process, but it was expensive. So she was a trader of it. She was probably fairly wealthy. She was from Thyatira. She probably had business interests. You know, it was, it was a rarity for a woman, but she did it. And she was a worshiper of God. She was, she was a, a woman who was a Gentile. Because it doesn't say she was a Jewish woman. It says she was a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile who was a believer in God. And it says, heart was opened, her mind was open to what Paul had to say. And then we come um, to verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon him. So Paul came there to stay in her household. She had a household. Now, here's the interesting thing. She and her household were baptized. Later on, I'm not going to get to it. in today's lessons, in, in chapter 16, the Philippian jailer was saved. And it says after he was saved, Paul went to his home, and his entire household was baptized. It also says his entire household believed. Because of this chapter, there are some who, who think that we get the practice, or we or was acceptable the practice of baptizing children or infants, because the whole household was baptized. For a couple things to respond to that, from Lydia and from the jailer. The household would always include children, but not every household had children. Any of you have a household that do not have children in it, just lift your hand up. So if we were to baptize everybody in your household, we wouldn't baptize children. Now, Lydia was probably a woman of at least middle age or more, just like the jailer, who was, you don't get to become a jailer the easy life of a jailer, when you're young, you work up to that position. So there's no evidence that there were ever any children in their household. So that's an argument for silence. And then in the jailer's case, we're told that all of his household believed before they were baptized. The other thing is the word baptized inevitably means to plunge under, to push under. We did that. We pushed them under. <laughs> that's not a big baptistry. So if we get to the edge... We might have to do a few things to get them under good, squeeze them down, like 
Some of you men have to squeeze into that belt loop one last time to get everything there. He said, get them, got to get them all in. I had a lady one time, God bless her. She was, uh, and I was in Laredo, and she was older, and she's 86 years old, when to get baptized. We went down the baptistry. And it was one of those old baptistries that had metal railings on it, and I'm ready to put her under, and she grabs that railing. She's a little old thing, too, and she probably don't weigh 100 pounds. And I actually grab, I go, and she grabs that thing, she holds on, and I go, whoop, can't get all the way under. So I pop her back up, I kind of laugh, says, you all right? She says, yes. So we go one more time. She says, okay. So I here we go. And, we go, and she grabs that thing, and I get like to hear. I mean, like her head sticking up and her chin, and she won't go under, and I don't want to break her. <laughs> so I pull her out. I said, we're good. And I walk out, and I look at Brother Gene, who was helping me. I said, Gene, she's now a Methodist. Because <laughs> I couldn't get her all the way in the water. So... We helped her every week take a van over to the Methodist church where she lived. That's why baptism is purely symbolic, because you can't get them all the way under. You just pretend you did and say, Lord, help them. So here's the thing. You wouldn't do that to infants. In fact, the reason we sprinkle is because we started baptizing infants. If we'd have never baptized infants, we'd have never sprinkled. There'd have been no reason to. But you don't, for some reason... The people that baptize infants don't want to put them all the way under. I don't know why, but they don't. Hey, maybe the solution is don't baptize infants since they can't be saved. Notice, she was baptized. And then she says, come and stay in my house. And she prevailed upon us, Luke says. And that's where the church in Philippi started. Because they didn't have buildings back then. They started in people's homes. And the first church started by Paul in Europe started in the home of a woman who evidently was the head of the church because she was in charge of her family, and that's where it started. In verse 16, it says, It happened as we were going to the place of prayer. They kept going to that place of prayer to get people. A slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. He was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Yeah, I love this. Following after Paul and us, this is Luke, she kept crying out. She was bothering them, saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. I mean, she's possessed by a demon. She's saying, They're telling you about Jesus. And they were just bucking them. And she continued doing this for many days. And Paul was greatly annoyed. I love that. And he turned to the Spirit. He said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her at that moment. Notice, she did not have any faith at that moment. She was just possessed by a demon. Paul had enough of her bothering her. I understand how it is when people keep bothering you. And there have been times I've wanted to cast the demon that was in them out of them. Only they weren't possessed by a demon. They were just annoying. When the master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him to the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief masters, they said, These men are throwing our city in confusion, being Jews, or proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or deserve, being Romans. We understand that the girl undoubtedly came to Christ. Part of the reason, you know, because we know for proclaiming what Paul was bringing salvation and the demon party, and she, we understood she was saved. So here you have... The first two converts in Europe. What a glorious start. 
a woman and a girl who was a slave possessed by demons. And that's how you began building a church. That's how you began building a movement. It is a reminder, I think, to me as a pastor, that the way I plan on doing things and the way God plans on doing things don't always mesh. But God will honor the way I plan on doing things when I submit myself to the way God wants things done. He always will. You know, Paul can't be blamed for the, what he thought was going to happen. He was being led. It wasn't like Paul wasn't praying, seeking the Lord. He was. And Paul had an idea of what needed to happen. It turns out, ultimately, Paul's idea of what needed to happen was going to happen. I mean, Paul was going to end up in Ephesus. Ephesus was going to be a critical place. Many men would come to salvation, including at Philippi. Because that's who the next convert is going to be. It's going to be a jailer. So they got stuck in prison and all that stuff. In verse 25, midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So they're in prison. And they're just worshiping the Lord. That's got to be difficult. I, I can't imagine that. Some of you probably understand the being in prison part, just not the worshiping the Lord part. You know, if you did it or not, that's crazy. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, and the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And all the doors were opened up, and everyone's chains were fastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself because he thought the prisoners escaped, because that was expected. That's what paganism does. <laughs> and Paul cried out with a large vo loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And then the lights, he called for the lights, and they rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, here's what he said. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Amen. At the heart of the sharing of Jesus is people coming to the place to understand they must be saved. That's what we strive for. That's what we want. That should always be our passion. Like, there are a lot of important things that we do, and I get that, and I, and I understand. And there's a lot of Things in ministry that are, that are necessary. And, and I understand all of that. But when all is said and done, the number one thing we do is find every way we can to help people come to faith in Jesus. So they might ask, what do I do to be saved? And when you think about the future of our church and, and what is before us, our number one priority must always be, will that get us to a place where people will be saved? We're starting the fourth service Sunday. Found out Travis is playing all four. I'm, I'm preaching all four. When, when you got conflict and difficult, it's going to be a hard stretch. You get a couple of old guys who know what they're doing to come handle all four. <laughs> Brian's only doing three. <laughs> two, and, two and a half. That's all he's doing. He's doing half a service on that fourth. Joe's just doing an announcement. Mike's leaving, leaving us to go somewhere else. He ain't going to be around. He and Barry, a couple, a couple of old timers, are going to handle all four. But here's the thing. And... and, and 
You know, Brian and I talked a lot about this. Do we do a forced service to make ourselves look good? Or are we doing a forced service so more people can come to Christ? You wrestle with that. I think every decision we make, we wrestle with that. Are we going to build phase two so more people can come to Jesus? Or are we just building phase two so we can have a bigger church? It's a lot of money involved to have just a bigger church. At the end of the day, we must always ask ourselves that question. Why are we doing what we do? And the answer must always be, so people will say, what must I do to be saved? And if they ask that question, we did what God wants us to do. Well, with that in mind, this is after seven. I didn't get to talk as long, but that's okay. Any questions you might ask, I'll do my best to answer them.